So several years ago, when I was still on staff here at Wellspring, Bob and I paid a little visit to Brad and Heidi Durham's house to talk about church stuff. And um, I knew at the time that Brad was the owner, operator, coach at BFIT CrossFit, but I, I didn't know what CrossFit was at all. And somewhere in the conversation, um, Heidi said, hey, Stace, have you ever thought about trying CrossFit? And I'm like, nope, nope, I am, I, no. And I was trying to be like real polite about saying, I am not doing that ever. But she was really persistent, and she just kind of like <laughs> kept after me and kept after me. And she finally got me at just straight face, Brad can teach you how to climb the rope. I'm like, well, you know, what 45-year-old mom doesn't want to learn how to climb the rope, so sign me up. And uh, while you're at it, sign Devin up, too, because he really wants to do CrossFit, by the way. And uh, so we started that about three years ago, and it didn't take us long to figure out that uh, while BFIT is a really great gym, fitness was really just the landscape for other really great things to happen, like discipleship and community building and really authentic, deep care for a lot of people. And we've seen that on the grand scale all the time, but we've also just experienced it as a family, personally, as we've become really great friends with Brad and Heidi, and we've watched Brad, you know, with our teenage boys, not just work on their athletic performance, but really help develop their character, too. And so I'm really looking forward to hearing the message that Brad has to share with us today, and I'm going to turn it over to him. Thanks, Brad. Thank you. All right, guys, it has been about 12 years since I have preached a sermon, so there's going to be a lot of sentence fragments, sputtering, and probably mispronouncing, mispronouncing words. I can't even say that word right. So I'm really excited. Good morning. Um, hi, Bob and Kristen in uh, Florida. Hope you guys are having a great time down there, head of the beach. So um, we're going to explore some of God's word this morning. That's the whole reason we're here, to try to grasp a little bit of what he has. Uh, for us. And we're going to talk about some ideas that Bob, Justin, and a few other speakers here have talked about before. Um, And they've done a great job communicating. I just kind of get to add like a little Lego block on top of what they have talked about already. Uh, My overall thought today that I want you guys to kind of have in mind while um, you listen to my sentence fragments is uh, how can we see the grace and truth that Christ offers intersecting with caring for the lost and the lonely. That's kind of a big concept, a lot of things. Bob said, I have two hours, so sit back. Uh, the Chiefs are done for the day. We got till next Sunday night at what, 6.30, Justin, right? And then, uh, so we're gonna be here a while. No, uh, about 32 minutes was my, uh, was my goal, and we'll see what happens. Uh, to give you guys some background, I, uh, I was a farm kid for the first nine years of my life. And let's just say it had a lot of interesting stories from cow manure in the face to uh, hitting cousins with the baseballs. And, you know, it was just a blast. We lived on the farm uh, for nine years. And then my father, who was a great man, um, decided to to follow what he felt like was God's audible call on his life to go in the ministry. And 35 years later, my dad is still serving Christ faithfully, which is so cool, and is, um, he's an inspiration to me and so many others how a simple farmer 
followed what God called someone to do. So, I love you, Dad. I know you'll watch this later. So, all right. At the age of nine, um, I found myself as one of the lonely. No, I wasn't an orphan. No, I wasn't homeless. But I was a kid that had just moved away from the only home he knew. Right? Basically, when my dad went into the ministry, we lived within a five-mile radius of all of my family. My grandparents, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins. The, uh, the small school that we went to had like nine kids in the second grade class. We had one teacher for first and second grade. So you don't see that that much anymore, but that's how small of a school I went to. Um, pretty much, it was the Durhams, the Hatfields, and the McCoys. That was our crew. All right? Um, I think my, um, I, I think, you know, for me, leaving this safe zone and walking into a new school, living in the small town of Bolivar, where McDonald's was right up the street, not 30 minutes away, was really, really scary for me. I had to figure out new friends. I mean, I'd known these kids I went to school with forever. You know, that's who I grew up with. You know, and probably the, the biggest positive was McDonald's was right up the street. The negative, there wasn't the dollar menu yet, you know? So it's, yeah, you guys get it, all right? <laughs> Double cheeseburgers, here we go. So you have a lonely kid at a new school and in a new town. And, at a, and now at a new country church where my dad was the pastor for the first time in my life. And we were backwoods, guys, literally in the backwoods, all right, at a little church called Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. And the expectation for my Sunday school teacher, they, they, they expected, you know, I went from running around eating the cheap Oreos, you guys know what I'm talking about, the white on top and the chocolate on bottom with the really good uh, lemon flavor in the middle, you'd eat those all the time in Sunday school, to the kid who was supposed to know the Bible. Like, oh no, right? Um, I was the preacher's son. I have the Bible memorized in third grade. Um, I remember Marilyn, just, I don't know why she sticks out more than anyone else, but um, she was a, one of my Sunday school teachers, and she literally, I remember this, asked me to quote scripture. I'm like, I'm in third grade. Come on. And I think it was like Lamentations 12.4. And for anybody who knows the Bible, there's only five chapters in Lamentations. So even worse. So to say the least, the church had become this really fun place at our old church when I was just like the kid that ran around and had fun to the pastor's son in a really lonely, scary place for me. All righty. That was as a third and fourth grader. <clears throat> Another example was more in middle school as a pastor's kid. We would go to church camp, um, and we would have these things called Bible drills or sword drills, okay? For anyone who's been to a small Baptist uh, summer camp, you would, you would have participated in this, where you would take your Bible, and you would hold it up, and they would say, you know, on the count of three, find this verse. So three, two, one, and you'd find it, and normally I lost a lot, and, you know, the leaders there, you know, they would, they would like, look at me in disappointment. Like, because I couldn't find the verse fast enough. You know, A, I couldn't read that well. But B, I just wasn't good at that. And they'd be like, shame on you, preacher's kid. Why are you not better than this? Aren't you, aren't you the preacher's kid? Don't you know God and the Bible and Jesus? 
I'm like, I'm just a kid. So it just always felt like there was a ton of pressure on me that created isolation that led to loneliness. That was really hard, right? Those, those late elementary, early middle school years were just super, super hard, right? When it came to dealing with friends, dealing with church, dealing with schools, because then we did move a couple times too, so it just makes it even harder. Um, I really think Marilyn and all those other camp counselors and teachers that I had in the, uh, the church realm had the greatest of attentions. I really think they did. They wanted, they wanted to see me excel knowing the Bible. But these experiences set me up for a false idea of what church and discipleship was. All right? Since I was the pastor's kid, it always came across from my teachers, I should have all the right answers to help the other kids. I remember many times parents saying, hey, get my son on track. I'm like, I don't, I don't, okay, sure, all right, I'll, we'll do that. Remember I told you that um, my dad was a great man? What was so cool about my dad being the pastor, he never expected me of this. He never expected any of this. We didn't have to memorize the Bible verses. We didn't even have to read our Bible if we chose not to. My dad was really cool. He didn't make me memorize spellings like Obadiah that I had to look up and, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar and all that other stuff. I didn't have to know that stuff. My dad was just like, wow. He was like, cool. He was understanding. The community that we were in, there was such a great expectation. I remember they would hound me and expect me to produce deep answers, godly answers that maybe Nick Codeman could create, but I couldn't, all right? Um, and they always wanted to hear these godly prayers out of a high school kid. You know, when you're asked at the age of 13 to pray for everyone, that's, that's super intimidating. It's really hard. The silver lining from this, though, that did come is I did learn a lot of Bible. I understood a lot of scripture. I knew a lot of scripture. Um, I could go chapter and verse pretty easily on a lot of areas. And so, so to find something good out of that negative, that was it. And I did learn how to pray for people and pray with people out loud. So that was a benefit. I, but I would say, Zach Miller, where are you? And your sisters, where are you at, Zach Miller? You understand the loneliness of a pastor's kid. All right, the expectation. And the other two, where are you guys at? There's the girls. All right, girls. All right, you three understand it. And the expectation is hard. All right, now this isn't a woo, you know, what was us pastor's kids. But we got that connection. Unfortunately, this pattern didn't stop when we moved from Mount Pleasant Baptist Church to uh, Bessonia Baptist Church to First Baptist Church of St. Joe, all right? Those are the three churches that my dad preached at. Um, and this became a reality for me, a discipleship or church. And it left me feeling really inadequate and perplexed because it wasn't what I was actually learning in the Bible. Remember, these people expected me to know the Bible, so I learned the Bible. But what they were doing really wasn't what was in the Bible. So it was this hypocritical idea. And so um, Christ calls us to love God, which I think they wanted me to do. Love others, I think they didn't know how to do. And make disciples, which clearly they didn't know how to do. So love God, love others, make disciples. 
wasn't what they were teaching me. All right? They were teaching me that I had to have all the right answers. You have to know the scripture to tell everybody all this stuff. And I continuously read James 2, 18, and how we were to show people our faith by what we do. All right? I have probably read the book of James over 500 times. Why? Because it's a great thing to read when you can't sleep when you go to bed at night. It takes about 20 minutes, and you'll be out like a light. So remember that. The book of James, five chapters, you'll go out. All right. So, you know, the irony in this whole situation, kind of what I've been telling you guys about with my, my, uh, my, my Sunday school teachers, my church community, the irony in this was the community of people that expected me to communicate biblical truths to my friends, never talked to any of my friends when they came to church with me. It's like, wait a second, hold on. You want me to talk to them, but you're not gonna come up and be around them. You're not gonna come up and introduce yourselves. You're not gonna come up and ask them about their lives. And so what really came down to is my friends wanted just that, to be my friends and not my project, all right? I couldn't give my friends what would fix them no matter how many times I tried. And my experiences up to this point set me up to learn this really hard truth later in life. Um, I was not powerful enough to change someone. And the expectation from the church community made it hard to come to that understanding. The unfortunate piece was I had been taught that my power in sharing Christ would eventually change someone's heart. And that was all wrong. My friends wanted to see something attractive in me. There's nothing attractive about Brad Durham. Jesus is what is attractive. And too often they saw Brad Durham. And at the end of the day, guys, I'm a pretty jacked up, lonely, unloving dude. I am. And we all are. And that's pretty unattractive. And unfortunately, so many of my conversations with my friends in high school and college turned into used car salesman pitches for the gospel. Hey, come on, come join Jesus, you know? And from those experiences, greater failure, because I couldn't save them. I couldn't get them to pray a prayer. I couldn't get them to church, or I couldn't get them to this or that, became rejection, and because of that failure and rejection, I was broken, I was hurting, I was torn apart. And you know, my, feet, my football teammates always chose beer and women over coming to that Friday night deal at church, which I don't blame them, honestly. I mean, they, it wasn't anything there for them. So... The, the pitch, the text from teammates, hey, let's go, you know, this, this, and this was a lot better than, hey, come with Brad, get in the car, let's go to church. So some teammates, though, I will say, in their hungover states would join me and, uh, for church on Sundays, and the people would come around me, the, the church people would come, pat me on the back and say, hey, good job, way to bring your teammates, you're really making a difference, you know. But the bad thing is, I don't think a single teammate ever really got much out of a service, for a couple reasons. One, I feel like everybody, every teammate who went with me 
had this like target on their back. And, and church people, especially like the old ladies, no offense to old ladies here, but you could just tell them, they're like, they would stare. Because, you know, my buddies, really big guys, sometimes cornrows, sometimes crazy hair, sometimes still smelled like alcohol from the night before, and lots of tattoos. There was this stigma of like, ooh, watch out, hide your children. They're going to like take them, all right? Like, <laughs> they're not ogres. It's not Shrek. It's okay. Like, and so... Watch out, they might try to date your daughter. I mean, I felt like that so often, especially in college. Like, we would go to church, and yeah, I felt bad for my guys. I kind of just stopped bringing them because it was just this persona. I'm like, man, that's not okay. They're not Shrek. I might look like Shrek, but they're not Shrek. All right? So my church experience created more distance between me and my friends, causing a deeper sense of loneliness. At least in high school, I will say this. Um, when I would go to Young Life, Dave Hind, all right, he, he was going to sing every week Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses. And so we could get those guys there. And Coach Duty, if you guys know Coach, <laughs> Dave Hind in 2019 and Dave Hind in 1999. <laughs> that was Young Life right there, okay? If you're wondering, that's um, Axl Rose. So, um, you know, but... Coach Dudik would also show up sometimes in a skit with biker shorts and a tank top. So if you know Coach Dudik, that was pretty fun too. So at least that created a good time for everyone and there wasn't this sense of awkwardness of people staring at him. You know, but as great as that was, I will never forget standing in the hallway of the church and a member came up to tell me that I was serving two masters. You have to choose church or this devil place called Young Life. I'm like, what? <laughs> Come on, are you serious? So, at the end of the day, these experiences that I had of trying to become a disciple of Christ and living as, in, in, as a Christian was unattractive to me. It was a shackle of duties where I had to get everyone to believe exactly like me because a four-sentence prayer guaranteed salvation. This line of thought only guaranteed heartache for me. I even had a friend pray this prayer, one or two at a youth event, but what was crazy is nothing in them changed. Their hearts weren't changing. And it was a false narrative of legalism that was pressing in hard on my soul. Pray this prayer and you're saved. Do these things and you'll be saved. It was duty, duty, duty lined. And that was what my Christian walk was. And that's what I communicated to my friends. And believe me, I'm sure that was unattractive. So where did God meet me and make a great impression on me? Steak and Shake in, Missouri, in Springfield, Missouri. And where else? I mean, home of the steak burgers and skinny fries, all right? So God met me at Steak and Shake. Notice my life deals a lot with food. That's why we CrossFit, Stacy, so we could eat a lot of food. So in my first semester of college, this guy named Jason Kortz, who worked for Campus Crusade, came into my life. Um, like I've explained to you guys, I had these experiences that had created a, a pattern for my life, talking about um, what discipleship was supposed to be and how... You know, it should go. And what was so cool, this simple, quiet friendship that never ended and always began with, hey, Durham, 
When are we going to go hang out? From Jason Quartz was impactful. Started at 18 years old. For the next five years, Jason was my friend. We talked about football. We talked about dumb relationships that I had with girls. He even got me to jump in a lake when it was two degrees outside and run through the woods. As I hear this happens on the men's retreats here at Wellspring. All right. Jacob Davis. All right. In five minutes, Jason had already asked me more questions about my life than any church community had the past 13 years, or 18 years, excuse me. He cared about me in those five years of college, all right, and he cared about me in those five years of college, and he wanted to know about Brad. He wanted to know about me, all right? Not what Brad was going to do to get his teammates to Jesus or how Brad was going to be a good Christian, but he cared about me. And that's huge for somebody who's feeling lost and lonely. When somebody truly cares about you. So a Thursday night at Steak and Shake by Mo State, all right, he helped me to understand complete unmerited favor from God, which is grace. And he did this by sharing some biblical truth with me. What was crazy, I felt freedom for the first time. I'd been a Christian since I was eight years old, but lived in the shackles of that legalism for so, for so long. That night, I remember just hanging out with my friends with no strings attached, no desire to lead them out of their sinfulness. I realized I didn't have that power. I couldn't I couldn't do that. So it was freeing to know that I wasn't responsible for that anymore. You would have thought a weight was lifted off my shoulders. And for that, for that first night, I remember, I actually felt friendships. I was like, wow, I can have a conversation without an alternative motive of trying to get you to be like, no, I'm going to change my ways. That was so cool. And so when James says our salvation is displayed by caring for the orphans and widows, Jason did it. He did it. He took an orphan. Yes, I considered myself an orphan during this time because there's not too many college football players who were A, a virgin, and B, didn't drink on the Missouri State football team. All right? He took me, and he cared for me, and he loved me. Right, And so he loved the lonely. He showed me grace and helped me get, grasp God's truth about it. And then loneliness was leaving. So a scripture that I want you to write down, Mark, we're going to pull, pull that first scripture up. This is what Jason did for me. It's from 1 Thessalonians. All right. All right. We're not going to pull it up in the Bible just yet. But uh, if you write it down, put it in your brain. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. That is what Jason did for me. He was a father who encouraged. He picked up right where my dad left off and encouraged me and comforted me and said, Brad, you can live a greater life than this. So those five years I spent watching Jason live this verse out in front of my life. He, dis he discipled me by how he lived and, and, not, and by what he said. His life, though, was weird and awkward. I'm not going to lie. I love him to death. He's kind of awkward to talk to. Um, but it was so attractive because he knew 
the gospel, and that gospel compelled him to love me. Alrighty? I wanted to be like Jason. All right? There were some times that I didn't agree with him. I didn't want to talk to him about the struggles I was having or let him push me into a light that is worthy of God. Quite frankly, sometimes I thought he was just wrong. All right? But he never left my side. And I told him that. Like, dude, you're wrong. He's like, you're going to figure out one day I'm not, but okay, that's fine. All right? We, we disagreed, but he was... His display of Christ through a genuine relationship with me was what was so attractive to a lonely person. So those five years in college had exponential growth and preparation for my life. I thought from this point I was ready to be a youth pastor or a teacher or a young life leader. And I could without a doubt mimic what Jason had done for me. The plan was simple. Spend time with people, ask them about their lives, and stay beside them through hard situations. I got this. So, bummer. It didn't go so well. All right? I fell right back into doing the right acts again. If I do these three things well, then it will be successful. I was doing, 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 just like before I had duty, duty, duty. And I got mixed up again. That's why I fell and tripped again. All right? After these great five years, all right, I realized, I mean, I, I just didn't have an internal burning flame for others to know Christ like Jason did. He had motivation. I had determination. And so for the next seven to eight years, I struggled in youth ministry, guys. I was a youth pastor at a church of 6,000 people in Ohio. It was awesome. It was Disneyland. It was everything you could want. And I struggled. So I moved back to San Joe. I'm going to be a teacher and work with Phil. The Lorax, where's he at? Not here today, slacker. All right. Um, I was going to work with Phil and do some Young Life stuff. And I struggled at teaching and loving the kids Man, there were some central kids that I could not find compassion for, right? Man, they drove me up the wall. And then finally, we started this B-Fit thing, and the final straw came that I just could not love people. I was determined to be successful, and, but yet failed horribly at it. I completely missed Jason's full lesson that was displayed through his motivation of meeting me right where I was. So, I mentioned this be fit thing. After eight years of, you know, of doing some youth ministry stuff and some teaching and all this, me and my partners set out on this great idea of success. Um, and really, that's what brought down the house, I think. I went through a super hard situation in 2015. And the day my son was born, it was one of the top three best days of my life. Top three. One, when Heidi and I got married. Two, when Anaya was born. And three, when Knox was born. Four, when Bear comes here any day soon. All right? But that day, in the hospital room, I experienced betrayal, hatred, and the darkest night of my soul. 
again, I felt fully lost and fully lonely. I just, my son was just born. I needed a savior. I needed a friend. Too bad Jason wasn't beside me anymore because he had moved on to work at K-State, and so we weren't there. But God had put somebody else in my life. She's a nerd right there. Heidi. And she pointed me back to Jesus. She picked up where Jesus left off. In that lowest point, Heidi and I prayed at the gym. I cried at time. I cried at home. I cried at the gym. I cried at the hospital. And I cried right back there in that pew. And my prayer was for God to give me another chance. My prayer was for me to love people like Jason had loved me. What's wrong with me? (laughs) Sorry, guys. A chance to understand motivation over determination. To meet people right where they were. But what was my motivation to love people? What had Jason understood that I didn't? How did, ha- how did he have this huge capacity to love people where I could barely love my business partners at this point? Now, granted, there were some really hard things going on, but God doesn't stop loving us when we're doing some dumb things. So why couldn't I love them? Why couldn't I love people? And it came down to this. I simply did not know how to love. There was no motivation for me. So, since, Mar- since March 9th, 2015, my motivation has come from that scripture. First, the one I shared earlier. All right, that Thessalonians one. Put that back up if you would there, sir. All right, for you know that we, dwell, we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom. In glory. So that's scripture. Now the second one, I want you guys to get your Bibles out. All right, we got a sword drill here. We're going to see who wins. All right, everybody's got to hold them upright, perfectly square. The first one to get to the page is going to stand up and read this for us. So, Justin, are you ready? All right. Luke 16, 19 through 31, go. You're supposed to be going like really fast right now and spinning through, but... All right, if you would turn to that. It's on page 952. That'll help out that Bible drill a lot. It's the rich man and Lazarus scripture. If you haven't read this before, it's a great one to mark in your phones or in your Bibles. Even the church Bibles is fine to mark in. Sorry, Bob. All right, there's really one verse that we're going to really focus on, but I'm going to read the whole passage so that you guys get an idea. So again, that is Luke 16, 19 through 31, page 952 in your Bibles. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in, a luxury, and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. 
Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Verse 26, like this is the Throw that up on the screen. This is the one that we're going to stick on and kind of hang out on. Leave that up there for a while. Um, and besides all this, Abraham said, between us and you, a great chasm or divide or ravine or whatever word you want to, whatever synonym you want to use, I always try to think about it as the Grand Canyon. A great Grand Canyon has been set in place so that, who, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And the guy argues, No, Father Abraham, he said, But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone raises from the dead. Now that was a foreshadowing of Christ raising from the dead, that last part there, because people didn't listen to him when he rose from the dead. But this spoke volumes to me and gave me a motivating factor for the people I intersected with every day. I don't want anyone, and like, please hear me on this. Like, if you, you know, this isn't the main point, but I want you to listen on this. I don't want anyone, my gym members, the people in this church, the people walking down the street, to be on the far side of this chasm begging Abraham for him to send someone to ease their sufferings. Or to beg Abraham to send someone to tell them about Christ, their families about Christ. I want to help people come to know Christ now. And to tell their own families about him and his goodness before they die. And so that was so cool. These people who just got baptized, they're on this side of the chasm with Abraham now. They're on the side of the divide there because they accepted Christ. And what a cool picture for you guys to see. I want to say this with as much grace and humility as possible that I come to you guys with. And this is not a popular idea in today's world. Okay? But it's biblical. People who die without Jesus Christ will spend an eternity in a place of separation, loneliness, and everything else that comes with hell. It's not my words. I'm simply the communicator of what the Bible tells us. Those who choose Christ, though, 
and his salvation will be saved. So there is hope for the lonely, for the lost. From that, I have to believe that all can come to know Christ. Otherwise, the thief on the cross next to Jesus wouldn't be in heaven with him today. And let me set up this next biblical narrative. All right, if you want to go to Luke 23, 40 through 43. I don't know if I gave you that scripture. Did I, sir? I did? Boom, good stuff. All right, sword, all right, sword drill number two. I did not give a page on that, though. So here's the setting. Jesus is on the cross with two thieves. All right, Jesus has his cross. There's a thief, and there's a thief. All right, and you have this whole picture there. All right, let's call Thief A, Bob, and Thief B, Dave. Just using Bob and Dave because they're not here, all right? So, but the other criminal, but, but Dave rebuked Bob, all right? Don't you fear God, he said, Dave said, since you are under the same sentence, Bob, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then Dave said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered Dave, truly I tell you today, Dave, you will be with me in paradise. The one thief believed that Christ could offer salvation and it was granted to him by his grace. So, motivation 101. While trying to walk through this super hard business time, we restarted BeFit with a new purpose. The company continued, nothing happened there, but it was just a new pointing, a new focus. And this is about the time when Stacy and Devin come on board. Um, I made a list of 10 things that I wanted to accomplish in the gym. What's funny is I only remember one of them today. I even took a picture on my phone, and who knows what happened to that phone. Um, the number one thing is love people. So if a guy doesn't know how to love, he's got to try to figure out how to love. Um, I decided that the people God placed in my path in the gym for one day or three years, I was going to invest as much into their lives as I could. I always hoped people are attracted to me because of Christ living in me. I want them to feel valuable in my eyes for who they were, no, for, for who they were, no matter what their story was. Because, like the thief on the cross, any one of us could die at any point, guys. And we all need Christ's salvation. So from this came the undertone of the gym. Is this on our wall anywhere? No. Is it on any of our letterheads? No. But I'm always willing to share this with any member. And I'm sure some members have heard me say this multiple times. CrossFit is rubber and it's iron. We have a bunch of rubber mats. We have iron pull-up bars. We have iron barbells, rubber bumpers. All righty. Rubber will crack and fade. It's going to go away. That floor is going to get old. Those, bump, those bumpers are going to break. Iron will rust and break. We've broken many bars. 
there's two things that last forever. God's word, man's souls. So Jason was motivated to make sure I was prepared to invest in people's souls. It took me some time to figure it out. Right? It took some heartache, just like in college. But members laugh today when they get a text from me when they haven't been there for a week or two or three, Keone. <laughs> Summer. Um, they might think... <laughs> They might think it's a business model. Sure, maybe whatever it is. But my motivation for them being in the gym daily or weekly is so that I have the opportunity to spend time with them, to love them like Christ loved on me through Jesus. There are many of lost and lonely people in our gym that I feel very burdened for them to come to know Christ. I pray that my heart pours into the people who need a friend, the ones that need an ear to listen. Because I was that lonely kid. I was that lost orphan on the football team who needed somebody. Maybe in our gym, one will be like the thief. And when it's right there at the end of their life, because maybe they get in a car wreck, heaven forbid, or something else happens, they will come to know Christ because of how much we love them. So what this looks like for me, Bob asked me to give you guys some application, all right, of how this whole loving the lost and lonely through grace and truth looks like. Uh, about 5,000 text messages a month. A bunch of funny memes to uh, members. And a bunch of Rolled eyes from my wife when somebody calls or texts during dinner time. Sorry, honey. So, but if I'm going to pour out into people's lives, I have to make myself available around the clock. My passion to build relationships with people where I could eventually share the gospel with them burns deep in my heart now. To have a place in someone's life and speak truth to them is an honor. That's not just something you get. You can't just walk in like, hey, I'm so excited for you. You got baptized, but I don't know you. So I just can't walk into your life and be like, dude, you're doing this great and this bad. I've got to earn that place in their life by investing in them. Heidi and I talk about this often, how God has placed us in a unique situation to love on so many people and to meet them right where they are. And hopefully we get to be that person that goes to the lost in our gym and stands in the gap or the chasm for them so they are not on the other side. They cannot cross over. I'll never forget the day that Heidi and I were uh, talking and I, uh, I don't, we were sitting on the couch at our old house and I got about 15 text messages in literally a five minute span. She was like, Jiminy Crickets, just let me talk. I'm like, I know, hon, I'm sorry. But she goes, Brad, you are so many people's coach, not only physically, but emotionally, spiritually, and really just their life coach. And I looked at her and I said, God has placed us here. God did that, not me. All right? Have we had a massive outpouring of people come to know Christ? No. Have we had 100 baptisms from our gym? No. But what we have had 
is people link arms with us, right? And they've joined us in loving the lost and the lonely. We have people that have joined us in these pews, right? It's so much fun to see the people that I intersect with at the gym that are now in our church three years later, four years later, right? We, in what's even probably the kingpin of all this, is there are people that through those hard times, you know, back in 2015, we have reconciled with. And we have been able to communicate and talk with them. And forgiveness has been laid out there and received. And we never thought that was possible. So God afforded us another chance. And we are trying to make every opportunity of it. So just as Jason grabbed that 18-year-old kid in the fall of 2000, he deeply invested in who I was and loved me with a motivation that I fully understand Christ. We, too, do the same today. Wellspring, you think, oh, Brad's all this, whatever, oh, he's done all this. No, you can do this, too. If you know Christ, let your motivation be that no one would be on that opposite side of the chasm. Let no one be on the other side of that great divide. Love them right now. Invest in them. You can do it at your jobs. If, you're a, if you have a hunting or fishing or drawing or music passion in your careers, whoever you intersect with, you can do that. It might take the dark night of your soul like it did mine. Maybe simply hearing this message for encouragement. Or maybe a hundred burpees. We can do that now too. All right? But you can start loving people with the motivation that they would come to salvation through Jesus Christ. To wrap this all up, okay? If you've heard nothing else, okay, if you've slept through this, I don't know, what are we, about 35 minutes, all right? All right, if you've heard nothing else, what I've said today, I want you to hear this, okay? So perk up, wake up. Christ's love was motivated by our salvation. Our love for others should be motivated by their salvation. No matter how you want to talk your way around it, guys, hell is waiting for everyone if you don't have a relationship with Christ. That's really hard, but that's the, base, that's the baseline truth. Simply reaching out, calling someone when you have that urge, or stopping long enough to ask someone how their day is going may lead to a 20-year friendship that ends with their salvation or possibly yours. All right, pray with me. Jesus, thank you for this time just to communicate um, your words.